This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host Austin, and we have Bennett Rogers as our special guest to talk about J.C. Ryle. So, Bennett, can you just... Tell us a little bit about yourself and then your interest in J.C. Ryle. Sure. Um, you know, I'm Ben Rogers. I uh, grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. I have a wife named Christy. I have two sons, uh, Henry Ryle Rogers and uh, Hugh Thomas Rogers. Uh, I pastor a small Reformed Baptist church in Mendenhall, which is about an hour south of Jackson. And uh, I got interested in Ryle through John Bunyan, oddly enough. So I initially wanted to do doctoral work on John Bunyan and just realized that the secondary literature on Bunyan is just unwieldy. There's just so many people interested in him. And so my thoughts kind of began to move forward in time from the 17th century to the 18th century. And as I began to look at 18th century um, figures to, to do doctoral work on, I came across this biography called um, Christian Leaders uh, from the Last Hundred Years, and it was by J.C. Ryle. I had known the name. Uh, I'd used a commentary of his in a sermon on Luke uh, in seminary, but didn't know much about him. You know, I've seen his books on the shelves, things like that, but loved Christian Leaders of the Last Hundred Years, realized that he wrote a lot. He wrote a lot about a lot of different things and realized pretty quickly that not many people have, there's not much academic work done on him. And so I decided I would focus my uh, doctoral work on him and trying to get to know him and his world and where he fits in that world. And so that's uh, that's how I became a, a fan of Ryle. Well, uh, we are grateful for you joining us today to talk about him. So uh, let's get into the life of Ryle. Can you give us a biographical sketch of Ryle, perhaps including his life, ministry, and theology? Sure, sure, sure. So, so Ryle was born in 1816. So I think, you know, in terms of British history, uh, the Battle of Waterloo, 1815, we're entering to the, the Pax Britannia. Ryle's born at the very beginning of that, born into a wealthy family. Um, his grandfather, John Ryle, um, was a convert of John Wesley. And John Wesley and Ryle's grandfather were very close friends. Uh, he is referenced in John Wesley's journals on a number of occasions. John Wesley would have preached from Ryle's grandfather's uh, front steps in open air to, to a large crowds. Uh, so he's a remarkable man. His dad made a lot of money. His granddad, excuse me, Ryle's did, made a lot of money during the wars with France because, um, because most of the silk that came into England used to come from France. But because England was at war with them, they started making silk in Macclesfield, where Ryle was from, and his grandfather made a killing, left a lot of money to his son, Ryle's father, 
And his father was a remarkable man as well. Uh, he was wealthy. He was fairly good at business. He was interested in politics, not as interested in spiritual things as Raoul's grandfather was. Um, and that will be a source of um, discouragement for Ryle later on as he looks back over his family. But he grew up in a, in a wealthy home with tons of privilege. He went to, to Eton College, which is like an, one of the most exclusive private high schools. That would be kind of our equivalent today. And was an outstanding student. He was an outstanding athlete. So Ryle's nickname was Magnus. That's, that's a Latin word for large. That's a good uh, nickname for an athlete, right? So he's this, he is a great athlete. He is a great student. He goes to Oxford uh, at Christ Church and excels there, uh, finishes f- with first class honors. And really there were three three men in his class that, that sort of had a special first class and he was one of them. And that his academic achievement at Oxford was always a source of pride for him later on. He was captain of the cricket team. Uh, and he would later say that playing sports, playing cricket, actually helped him as a church leader, thinking about how to deploy ministers in different places uh, and just helped his leadership more generally. Um, and at the end of his time at Oxford, uh, he began to go through um, a spiritual change. Uh, he says in his autobiography that, that it didn't happen all at once. It was gradual, but it was punctuated by kind of special moments over a pretty close period of time. So uh, one time he and his friend and his dad and his friend's dad were out hunting and he missed a shot, I'm guessing, and he cursed. And uh, his his friend, uh, either his friend or his friend's father, rebuked him there on the spot and told him to stop thinking, pray. Um, and that really kind of went home to him. And then there were a number of other things throughout his, throughout the next you know few months and years of his life where his heart began to be um, warmed to to the gospel but there's a very famous account of him he was sick like right before his final exams and uh, he went one day as he was getting better to just a random church to go to a service because he began to to read the bible and pray as he was sick and he went into this church he didn't know the minister he couldn't even remember the church later on in life but the minister while he went through the reading in the service read through ephesians 2 8 for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's not of works. As any man should boast. And he did so in a very slow, emphatic way. And Raul says that was it. Uh, when he heard that reading, um, that was the end of his kind of searching and the beginning of his finding. He would say that uh, you know within months he was a solid, uh, born again Christian. Um, and of course, I, I don't know if you gentlemen have heard of that account, but that's just one of these great moments. Um, where we see the, the power of just the red word. We often think about the, the power of the preached word in, in worship services. But Ryle, one of, the, one of the greatest ministers of the 19th century, was uh, probably converted simply by the reading of the public reading of Scripture uh, in a church service. Uh, and that verse is really Ryle in a nutshell, right? Grace, you're saved through faith, uh, not of works. Ryle had that um, verse written on his tombstone. You can see it in Liverpool. It's right there. It's a critical verse for him. Uh, but, but after his conversion, Raul had no desire to go into the church. Uh, he had every desire to go back home and kind of get into the family business of banking and politics. And so he moved home. Um, his family hated his conversion. Uh, they tried to talk him out of it. Um, he said like he was a stranger uh, almost among his family and friends because they just, they hated evangelicals. Um, they knew of them, but they thought that they were fanatical mad dogs. And they just didn't like Ryle being an evangelical. But he said the more they tried to talk him out of it, 
the more he was kind of driven to the word, driven back to the Anglican formularies and said, no, this is actually true. And so their attempts to, to talk him out of being an evangelical only rooted him and grounded him in it further, uh, which is remarkable in God's providence. I mean, Raul becomes the, the most successful and certainly the most prominent evangelical apologist in the Church of England uh, in the middle and la- late half of the 19th century. And uh, he has his family to thank for it after trying to talk him out of his uh, evangelical principles. Um, but he was he went to study law for a little while. That didn't work out. He came to work at his father's business so that we actually can find. Or there is existing a, a banknote with Ryle's signature on it. Um, but his dad made some bad business decisions and he went bankrupt. Um, now, bankruptcy is something I think in, in America, at least we're fairly familiar with. And it, there's not that social stigma attached to it. That's not true in mid-Victorian England. I mean, to, to go bankrupt is was seen as a moral crime as well as a legal one. And so it knocked you off your place on the social ladder. Um, his friends wouldn't associate with him. His old friends, his rich friends wouldn't associate with him. And Ryle said that they were right not to do so um, because you are in one sense tainted by the guilt of your parent. And this is also before the time of limited liability. So, you know, today if I were to go bankrupt, the creditors could get some things, but they couldn't get other things. That's not true in um, in 1841, I believe, is when when Ryle's grandfather, or when Ryle's father, excuse me, went bankrupt, and so everything had to be sold: his beautiful house, his horse, his clothes, his saddle, all that had to be sold. And he saw in God's providence no other option but to go be a minister, which is a, a rather interesting way of of thinking about your calling, right? I mean, I. Uh, Sometimes people ask me and come to me with questions about, should I go into ministry, should I not? I don't think I would ever kind of counsel someone to do what Ryle did, but in God's providence, it worked out pretty well. Uh, so he goes to become a, uh, a minister. Um, he goes and is a curate uh, in kind of non-Anglican world. That just means sort of like a, a minister trainee, associate minister, helper minister in out in the woods in New Forest. Um his rector, that's the minister, head minister sort of, who he worked for, was barely there. So he was like left on his own with no training to, for ministry, had no desire to be in it, you know, until his father went bankrupt and um, just really struggled, really, really struggled. Here's a guy who went from riches to rags, didn't plan on going to the ministry. Now he's in ministry. What does he do? How does he do it? His, his mentor is off in Malta uh, vacationing. Um, and so he just has to, to kind of figure it out through trial and error. Again, in God's providence, that was tremendously helpful. Uh, if you read Simplicity in Preaching or or some other works where Raoul talks about ministry, uh, he learned through trial and error, and he learned through trial and error during this time and uh, in, the, in the years that followed. Uh, so really interesting. Little, little, snap, little piece of his life was so influential. Uh, from New Forest, he went to Helmingham, uh, where he would stay from about, I'm trying to remember off my head, 1844 to 1860. And this is really where Ryle's ministry began to flourish. Um, he, Once he found his voice as a preacher, and I think we'll talk more about his preaching in a little while, once he found his voice as a preacher, he filled his church, and people began to come from other communities to hear him preach. They had to uh, bring benches into the chapel to uh, to accommodate the, the visitors, and so he was a very powerful preacher, a very effective preacher. Um, and uh, he got married during this time, he actually got married twice. He married uh, his first wife, and she died rather quickly. Uh, and then he married another. 
and Miss Jessie was his wife, I think, throughout the 1850s. They had a number of children, but she was always ill. And so when she was ill, they would go to get medical treatment in London. And while he was in London, he met all the kind of the influential evangelicals there, there in London and, and formed connections there that would later pay off down the road. Uh, he also got to preach in a lot of London pulpits. And I think he said he counted something like 66 at some point. So he preached all over London and that kind of helped create a base of interest for his preaching, teaching, and then, and ultimately his writing because he began writing at this time as well. Uh, during this time, he, his first writings were, were tracts, were evangelical tracts. Now, when we think of tracts, I think we often think of like, you know, the thing someone drops at the table when you go out to eat that, you know, has a simple gospel message. You know, Riles tracks, the, the short ones were 20 pages long. The long ones were 90 pages long. So we're not talking about like a little bitty, you know, simple Romans Road gospel message type thing. We're talking about a fairly, a fairly worked through and uh, thoughtful presentation of whatever it was. And so um, he began by uh, first, the way he got into this is really interesting because here's this guy who who didn't expect to be in ministry, didn't know how to do it, didn't have any money. And so he would borrow tracks from other people and then go visiting at people's homes and give them a track and, and talk about it. And then um, when they were done with it, he'd take it to another home and talk with them about it. And that's how he got involved with with tracks and with pastoral visiting, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later on too, which is, I think, a big emphasis of his ministry. Um, but then he realized that he had a voice and uh, he wanted to make tracks of his own. And so he began writing tracks. And initially those tracks were written for his congregation uh, in, in Helmingham, uh, especially for those who were sick or infirm. Remember, his wife was sick and infirm, so she couldn't go to church a lot. He believed the means of grace were important. So how could he minister to people um, who in his community, in his church, who couldn't go to church. And so tracts would be a way to do that. Um, so the, also expository thoughts on the Gospels began like that. If you look at the, the preface to Matthew, he'll talk about the reason why he wrote those wonderful commentaries. Uh, one, of, one of the reasons was for private study. Um, another was for uh, ministering to the sick and infirm who can't get out. So this uh, you know, he's, he's visiting, he starts this writing ministry there, um, and other societies began to take notice of Ryle. So I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent of a society, but, but we don't have those for the most part in our denominations in, in, in America. But you would have these evangelical Anglican groups, um, like the YMCA would be a good example of one. Um, and so he began to speak at those, began to write for those. And he just began to, to, to his, his ecclesiastical star began to rise through the 1840s and 50s. Um, and in 1860, he changed churches. He moved from Helmingham, being there for about 16 years, to Stradbroke, which wasn't too far away. Uh, and he was there from 1860 to or 1861 to 1880. And that's when he begins to become a national player. Um, his works, his writings, his preaching, he becomes, people start looking to him for leadership, uh, at least in the Church of England. If you're, an, if you're an evangelical and an Anglican living 1860 to 1880, Ryle looks like one of your leaders, then he looks like the leader. Um, and that's when a number of his famous writings come out that are with us today. If you think about Knots and Tide, uh, Practical Religion, Old Paths, Holiness, that's when uh, most of the um, expository thoughts start coming out. So he starts publishing these books. He, he gains a, a national following um, and really becomes the leader of the evangelical party, the Church of England, 
uh, in the 1860s and 70s. So the last guy to be that one man for the evangelicals inside the Church of England was uh, Charles Simeon, who you might have heard of. So Ryle really inherits that mantle and does a phenomenal job advocating for evangelical principles within the Church of England. Um, if you think about what's going on in the 1860s in England at this time, I mean, it's, you know, we often, I think, you know, wave, you know, bow our head and say, woe is me, these times are rough. I mean, think about 1850, 1960. I mean, Darwin hits the scene, essays and reviews hits the scene. That's higher criticism comes to England. Then the Anglo-Catholic movement, ritualism blows up at the same time. And so Ryle becomes the go-to man to respond to all of these things. And so, um, you know, that, that's one of the things I like about Ryle is that there's just so much variety in his writing. I mean, he wrote 24 biographies. He wrote, uh, you know, a defense of the inspiration of the scriptures to, to deal with some of those challenges. He wrote extensively about the Protestant Reformation to deal with Anglo-Catholicism. Um, but he also talked about science on occasion. He also did some other sorts of works in that way. Uh, also, the, the disestablishment movement was taking place then. Now, that wouldn't be something that uh, Charles Spurgeon had a lot to say about that. He did not like the establishment of the Church of England. Uh, he criticized Ryle in print uh, for his uh, advocacy of the establishment of the Church of England. Um, and so he's fighting all these fights at once and uh, visiting churches, preaching, just a remarkably busy, fruitful time in his life. Um, a guy named uh, Disraeli was the prime minister. He lost the election, and a guy named William Gladstone won. Uh, William Gladstone is from Liverpool. Uh, he is a high churchman with uh, Anglo-Catholic sympathies. And before Disraeli leaves office, he says, we've got to stick it to Gladstone. And so they want to find an ultra-Protestant bishop to, to become the first bishop of Liverpool. And uh, Disraeli picks picks Ryle. Uh, Ryle is about 64 at the time. Most of his ministry has been in small, 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 small church life. I mean, Helmingham had like 300 people in it. Um, Stradbroke had about 1,000 or 1,300. Liverpool has 1.2 million. Uh, so that's a lot of people. That's a lot of souls to care for. Um, the history of Liverpool is interesting in itself. I mean, it, I think I... Uh, you know, when Ryle was born, there were about 115,000 people in Liverpool. When he gets there, there's about 1.2 million. It's the second most prosperous city in the British Empire. When the time he gets there, at one out of every seven ships in the ocean, in the world, is registered in Liverpool. So we're talking about tremendous wealth. We're also talking about tremendous poverty. We're talking about tons of crime, violence, uh, cholera epidemics. I mean, like, just it's like the worst industrial town of the Industrial Revolution. That's Liverpool, pretty much. And so Ryle goes there. He's got about 600 ministers, or no, 400 ministers to to to, uh, to tackle this city with. And I think he does a, a pretty good job, given what he has, of, of being kind of the, the chief pastor of that city for 20 years. Um, and he, he really doesn't write that much during this time. So if you look at his writings from 1880 on, most of that is, is repackaging old material, or um, maybe making a few additions here or there, but he's got his hands full organizing a diocese, um, you know, consecrating churches, training ministers, dealing with all sorts of citywide problems. Um, and uh, he serves there for 20 years and dies in, in 1900. And uh, that's, that's his life, I think. Well, I, I appreciate that. I had, I had never heard his life told in, in full like that. And, as an aspiring church historian, I know that it can be, or at least for me, it's tempting to focus on the doctrinal writings of 
historical figures, but sometimes we forget that a lot of what they did was preaching and, and preaching in churches like John sure. Calvin, he, he preached. Now we all know about Spurgeon. He's the prince of preachers. So we know his sermons, but Augustine, he preached and things like that. So right. could you just right. tell us about Ryle's preaching and, and what sets him apart and what, what we can even learn from it? Sure. Well, I think one of the, the great starting points with, with Ryle and preaching is that his early preaching was miserable and it was a failure. Um, again, he didn't he wasn't planning on going to ministry. He wasn't you know, he didn't there wasn't a seminary uh, for him to go to. He was just kind of thrown in it. And so he began to experiment. And many of those experiments failed miserably. He says this. Um, the what he did get in his education was a lot of classical uh, oratory uh, and classical rhetoric theory, that's a, those sort of things. So he he read and digested Aristotle, Cicero, Quintilian, which is good. <laughs> that's really good. And so if you look at Ryle's, if you, one of the things that sets Ryle apart as a preacher is that in Victorian England, um, every all modes of communication pretty much are following the novel. Um, and novels, you know, a story unfolds. There's there, And the drama kind of comes as the story Unfolds to so think Jane Austen, think Charles Dickens, think things like that, Thomas Hardy. Um, and sermons were being preached that way. You know, if you read later on, if you read like Martin Lloyd Jones on preaching, he'll talk about how much he hates like literary preaching. Well, he's talking about Victorians because they all began to adopt, uh, or, or most preachers, because this was kind of the mode of the day, adopted a literary approach to preaching. Well, Ryle didn't do that. Uh, he stayed extremely classical. I mean, his, you know, Aristotle argued, and, and, uh, and Cicero as well, that the goal of an oration is persuasion. If you read Ryle's chapters of his books, all of which were sermons first, they're trying to persuade you to do or believe something. So that's definitely a part of it. He, he followed Aristotle and Cicero in terms of the, the means of persuasion, logos, ethos, pathos. Um, that's definitely present in everything he ever wrote or preached. Um, he believed in the, kind of the classical structure. Uh, everybody abandons this in Victorian period. But if you read Ryle's sermons or his chapters, he'll say, he'll introduce something and say, okay, I'm going to talk to you about four things, right? Or I'm going to talk to you about these three things or these five things. That's, that's, a, that's classical rhetorical theory. It's very unpopular in Victorian preaching, by the way. Uh, but that's one of the ways you see just how indebted Ryle is to the classical tradition. Um, he stressed the importance of memory, like the classic classical authors did. Uh, for Ryle, you know, he, he will... And one of the things Ryle is famous for is his quotes, right? I mean, you look at Twitter, you look at Instagram. Um, Ryle is a very quotable man. He worked to be memorable, right? He's trying to, to create hooks in his sermons that people can remember. And so he tried to, to find ways of stating things powerfully and memorably. So the first thing that I ever read of Ryle was his commentary on um, Luke and the penitent thief. And I, I mean, I can remember it now. He said that talking about one thief was why was one thief saved and one thief lost? And he said something like um, one was one thief was saved so that no one might uh, despair, but only one so that no one might presume. I mean, I, mean, I remember that from 2005 when I looked that up. So it's a, it's a really just catchy thing. So a memory is important to Ryle. But where Ryle departs from the classical tradition, and it's a really important departure, is that the the, the classical rhetorical tradition put a great deal of stock in style and flourish. I mean, you want to impress your audience as a classical order. Ryle didn't want to impress his audience. He wanted them to, they wanted, he wanted them to understand him. 
And so Simplicity in Preaching, it's a book he wrote on preaching uh, that I've recently uh, kind of reintroduced and put out. Uh, he talks about how to develop that simple style. And so he mentions things like you got to understand your text if you're going to be simple. It seems pretty, like, it seems like a no-brainer, but how many times have we heard a sermon where it was abundantly clear that our, uh, our pastor maybe didn't quite understand it fully because um, his communication wasn't all that clear. Sometimes that happened. I know I've preached sermons like that. Um, you know, with Ryle, he, he says, use simple words. Um, that's what Ryle does. That's why he's so easy to, to read and understand. Uh, use a simple style of composition, right? Um, I, and I compared this in, in my biography of Ryle. I looked at John Henry Newman, very famous Anglo-Catholic who became a Roman Catholic, who I think is going to be sainted this year or was last year or going to be next year. Anyway, he's a famous guy. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, of course you know the, him, and uh, Ryle, I looked at, they all preached on John 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. And I just looked at their sermons. I looked at how many words they used, how many sentences they used, how many paragraphs they used. Uh, and Newman's very different than Ryle and Spurgeon because his view of preaching is different. As an Anglo-Catholic, the sacraments more than the preached word is, is uh, preeminent. But for Ryle and Spurgeon, I mean, uh, you know, New, Newman's averaging 30 words a sentence. Spurgeon's averaging about 24, 25. Ryle's about 14. <laughs> so he is he he writes short, powerful sentences. J.I. Packer's another guy who does that today. And and I think he gets that from Ryle, by the way, because he really likes Ryle. Um, but he, you know, Ryle says, develop simple, uh, make your sentences and your communication simple and powerful. Be direct. You know, you if you read Ryle's stuff, he's going to say, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of redoing Thoughts for Young Men uh, for Ryle, and in every single reading, um, he says, young men, do this, don't do this, believe this, don't believe this, uh, you're in danger, that's why I'm warning you, 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 right? That's, that is, uh, that's direct. If you read Victorian preaching, it doesn't, you don't get that. That scene is a little bit too pushy, um, and that's not literary, right? So you'll see all the we's and us's, and Ryle fusses about that, and and simplicity in preaching. He wants preachers to use the word you because he's talking to you and wants to persuade you to do something as opposed to the we should do this or let us do this, that sort of thing. No, Ryle, but that's why Ryle, you know, you get the effect when you read holiness, for example. I mean, I'll never forget it. I was reading holiness. Um, I picked it up for a class on sanctification in RTS my last year and took it with me to the gym. And while I was waiting for my workout partner, I just started reading it. And before I'd known it, I mean, my partner had gone in. He'd been—he's waiting for me twenty minutes in there. I'm sitting there reading holiness, just, just transfixed. Um, and and Ryle's not taking it easy, right? I mean, chapter one is on sin. It's it's very direct, but he had my attention because he and I felt like he was he was writing right at me. Um, and you get that you get that sense when you read holiness or or any of his writings. That's intentional. That's not accidental. It's also not very Victorian. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else. Annie, well, Annie Taylor's stuff so well. I mean, Ryle can preach the same. You, I don't know if you're aware of this, um, but Ryle published a number of children's sermons, um, and they're really, they're really, really very good. But Ryle can. It's, it, what's fun to do is to look at how Ryle preached one sermon to adults and to children. Same content, but a very different approach. So he tailors. He tailors his content to his audience. When he preaches before working men, like working men's groups or, or laboring men's groups, you'll see lots of illustrations, lots of anecdotes, lots of stories. When he's preaching before an Oxford group, tons of church history, right? So he knows how to tailor his content so well. All of that, it comes from those trial, the trial and error of the early years of his ministry. Um, 
And he's a good preacher, really good preacher. I think I've, I think that's about all I want to say about that. Or um, anyway, well, thank you for that. Um, this next question will have some overlap. We talked about him as a preacher, right? Um, so, how does Ryle's uh, writing approach differentiate from his contemporaries? You mentioned uh, Spurgeon and the Catholic. Uh, right. Would you speak more to this? Sure, sure. Uh, again, what what one of the things that that is challenging about about reading Victorian literature, especially sermons, is that they really are trying to follow the Victorian novel. That's the popular medium of the day, and it makes. I mean, you see these massive sentences that are like this long. Um, you know, there's not a lot of application in them, right? Or the application comes in at the very end. So if you were to read the the John Henry Newman sermon on on uh, John four, John eleven, which was quite good, by the way. I mean, it's, it's quite good, but the only application there is is at the end. It's kind of like a novel, right? You kind of get the moral of the story at the end when the you know the, the, cli- the climax of the story has happened and then the, um, every, all the dust settles and now you kind of know the moral of the story. That, that's how preaching, a lot of preaching was then. Um, but Ryle's writings, Ryle did not try to follow that. Uh, he, his writing is like his preaching, short sentences, very short and direct. Um, Packer talks about it almost like a like a staccato drum. Like, do, 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 do. That, that's when when Rao gets going, you'll catch that. You know, um, I was doing. I can't remember exactly what it was on. I think it was on um, Knowing Christ. Uh, that's a chapter in Thoughts for Younger Men or Thoughts for Young Men. And he just gets going, talking about how Christ is the treasure of the soul. Right? He he is you know the savior of sinners. He's the best friend you can have. There's full forgiveness. I mean, it's almost like eight word sentences at that point, but it's, it's anyway, it's a short, simple composition, very direct. Um, and it does follow his preaching. I mean, that, that that's for, for Ryle, those two always go together because he wrote manuscripts uh, and he used manuscripts in his preaching, at least for a long time. So we've talked about his preaching. Now we've talked about his writing and now let's transition to more the pastoral care component of Ryle's ministry and and specifically his goals and visitations. Can you tell us a little bit about Ryle as a pastor and specifically pastoral care? Yeah, well, this to me was one of the big takeaways. When I got into Ryle um, more deeply, this surprised me um, because this was an, an age, a golden age of preaching. Um, and Ryle, you, you know, was one of the greats of that of that generation. But very few of those greats actually did house-to-house visitation, uh, and, and Ryle was an exception to that. He made it his goal to to visit every home in his district once a month. That's 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 significant. Um, that's significant. Now, and he was able to do that through the eighteen up till he went to Stradbroke when he had you know thirteen hundred people to, to see. But he hired curates so that he could have each of those homes visited regularly. Um, that was a very important part of his ministry. Um, and it was awkward for Ryle. I mean, remember, here, here's a guy who was who st- stood to inherit millions of dollars, had a beautiful estate, father went bankrupt, uh, riches to rags. Um, that's awkward, like struggling through that. He didn't know what he was doing as a minister initially. Uh, he's a big single man and ministering to, to, to a lot of, I mean, think about agricultural setting. The men are going to be away working and he's coming to visit. He's in these awkward situations with, with mothers and children, you know, so, and he talks about being awkward and this being difficult, which I love. 
because <laughs> because being a faithful pastor is hard and it's awkward and it doesn't come naturally to, to many people. Uh, you don't get the impression from from reading Ryle that he was naturally gregarious. You know that he was like this this people magnet that everybody just kind of gathered around. Now it, it, he had to work for it, like he did with his preaching. Um, but I think it's it's marvelous. Uh, so so why did he? Why was he such a diligent pastoral visitor? Uh, I think part of it is simple. He b- just simply believed that's part of the job. Um, and it was part of being faithful to his ordination vows. And so he it was a matter of honor. It was a matter of duty to, to do that, even if he felt awkward about it. Um, another thing that, another, I think, benefit that came from it for him is that he got to know people, people that he would have never met uh, otherwise. Um, you know, he's here's a here's a, an Eton educated Oxford first class man whose early ministry. I mean, really, from the first 15, 20 years of his ministry is is being carried out among, you know, farmhands. And so interacting with with these folks helped him to to figure out, OK, they don't want florid preaching. They're not going to they don't stay awake through florid preaching. So I've got to connect with them on their level. I've got to use illustrations. I've got to use anecdotes that they get. I've got to use language that they get. So I don't think he visited as a pastor so he could become a better preacher, but that certainly happened. And I I think in my own ministry, the better I've gotten to know the people I serve, the better my preaching has been, not because I've become a more gifted order, just because I know how to direct application. I know the, the sins they struggle with. I know the doubts they, they face. Um, and, uh, so I think that helped his ministry tremendously, um, and his writing—you know—his writing ministry was definitely shaped by that by by the visiting. Um, that's how he got into the track game. Um, that's how that's part of how expository thoughts got started. They initially began with cottage lectures. So he would go, you know, uh, and just open up Matthew, read some uh, in front of a family, and then kind of give a short talk about it. That's exactly. If you read expository thoughts, he says in the preface, "This is for family worship at home." Well, you know, Ralph developed this doing that, doing his visiting, um, and also ministering to the sick. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, and and I didn't know this until I um, kind of got into this work, is that Ralph published eight hymn books or compiled eight hymn books uh, throughout his ministry, um, and he did so for the express purpose of benefiting and blessing uh, invalids and those who were sick who couldn't come to church. So that was always, you know, that was always a home visiting, ministering to folks at home was always a critical part of his ministry. He, when he was Bishop of Liverpool, he, he hammered that time and time and time again. He said, this is the way to win Liverpool is to exalt Christ in the pulpit and visit people in their homes. Like that's how, that's how you win Liverpool. Um, exalt Christ in the pulpit and visit in their homes. And um, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, and he's just a remarkable. I, that I think I, that's one of the big takeaway. You know, there, there's Ryle has not a lot's been written about Ryle relative to Spurgeon or Newman, for example. Um, but this is some piece of him that, that very few people know very much about. That he was a diligent pastor, uh, even though he was a phenomenal preacher. Um, and that, that's not true of many people uh, historically. That you it, you you can find a powerful preachers. Uh, rarely those powerful preachers, diligent home visitors, uh, but Ryle was one of those guys. Uh, moving on to our next section, what influences has Ryle had on the Anglican tradition in which he was a part of and uh, the broader Reformed tradition? Well, good question. Um, well, the Anglican tradition, you know, the Anglican tradition is not monolithic. You have kind of different teams uh, within the one big church, 
Um, but since Ryle, Ryle, I mean, ever since Ryle's passing, he has been a, a tremendous influence on evangelicals in the Church of England. Uh, so you think about those who came after him, uh, Griffin Thomas, who I think was instrumental in help, helping set up Dallas Theological Seminary in, in Dallas, uh, was one of his um, examining chaplains or connected with Ryle in some way. The Mules, uh, M-O-U-L-E, uh, they were major players in the Church of England after him, and they were influenced by him. Of course, probably the biggest, the most, J.I. Packer is probably the most prominent um, evangelical Anglicans of the last half century, and he would say Ryle's one of his greatest influences. Uh, so he's had a tremendous influence within within Anglicanism. You know, when I first I, I published something on the Southern Seminary blog uh, a while back about why seminary students should read Ryle, and I got three emails pretty quickly after you know it went up. One from Australia, one from Kenya, and one from Canada, and they were all evangelical Anglicans who love Ryle. And so, um, in Australia, where there's a lot of evangelical Anglicans, they love Ryle. In Africa, when there where there are a lot of evangelical Anglicans, they love Ryle. Canada is the same tr as well. Um, but he's had a much bigger influence than he's not just like an Anglican hero, although he is definitely an Anglican hero. Um, his books like Holiness, Expository Thoughts. Uh, practical religion, old paths, um, excuse me, knots untied. Uh, those are and have been popular for for you know since they've been written among non-Anglicans. And, and one of the things that makes Ryle so appealing to non-Anglicans is that in his writing and in his preaching and his teaching, he always focused on those things that are essential to salvation. So if you ever read a preface where you know um, like expository thoughts or anything else, he's going to say he's going to focus on those things that are needful to salvation. Uh, and because those are evangelical truths, not Anglican truths, um, his works remain popular with Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and uh, as well as Anglicans. Um, not too long ago, I saw something on the Gospel Coalition where kind of some prominent ministers all mentioned the books that influenced them most. And almost without a doubt, everybody had Holiness by Ryle on there. Um, and so Ryle, Ryle's works, because I think of that focus on the things that are essential to salvation, uh, have guaranteed him a place of influence in the larger, um, in the larger evangelical world. Simply because, you know, you, I mean, it's like you, you read Pilgrim's Progress, you don't know if it's you don't know the denominational commitments of the author, right? I mean, you might could guess, but it's not clear from. From the Pilgrim's Progress, Part One or Two, if Bunyan is a Baptist or he's not, or he's an Anglican or he's not—I mean, that's just not clear. Um, and that's probably why the book has done so well. And Ryle's writings are like that. I mean, you you can read, you know, with the exception of Knots Untied, which has a, an Anglican flavor to it. Um, but I mean, anybody can read Holiness, I think, and as an, who 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 believes in the evangelical gospel and say this is good, um, and have no idea that the author is an Anglican. I mean, that's the, it's kind of remarkable um, that uh, his denominational identity is, is uh, in some sense hidden by his, his stress on evangelical principles. So for the person looking to dive in to Ryle for the first time and actually read things by him, what, what books would you recommend that they, they start with? Well, that's a good one. Um, a couple ways you could go. Uh, holiness is phenomenal. So it's a modern spiritual classic. It's it is um, it's the Pilgrim's Progress written propositionally, right? It's just classic Protestant 
Puritan evangelical theology presented in a bold, forceful, clear way. Uh, so that would be a great starting point. Um, another one would be maybe expository thoughts on the Gospels. Um, I think that that's Rama. I think he might point people in that direction because he loves the Bible. He would rather them read the Bible and some of his thoughts on it than, than perhaps something else. So I think either, you know, expository thoughts on the Gospels, holiness. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm working on a, a new edition of Thoughts for Young Men. So I, 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 teach, uh, I teach middle school Bible and Latin as well as pastoring a church. And so I go through with my middle school boys, sixth grade to eighth grade, uh, thoughts for young men. And that's a good entry point for them. Um, they, could, they can understand it. They uh, can wrestle with it. It's, that's another good one, too. So if you're kind of, uh, if you've got a young man in your life that you, um, you know, that, that you want to get interested in Ryle, thoughts for young men is a great, a great introduction. So those would be my three. Thoughts for young men, expository thoughts, and holiness. Perhaps you can uh, tell us a little bit about your book in this next section uh, and also give us some uh, resources that you would recommend if someone wants to learn more about uh, Ryle as a person sure, and his sure. theology. Yeah, so I, I, I wrote um, A Tender Lion, The Life, Ministry, and Message of J.C. Ryle. It's basically my doctoral dissertation, uh, popularized. And what I try to do is kind of tell the story of Ryle's life thematically and chronologically. Uh, so in the first part, I kind of worked through his early life, his conversion, um, his ordination, his early ministry. Uh, then I look at him as a preacher by looking at the next kind of phase of his life, um, then as a pastor, uh, then as a, a controversialist, then his national ministry, and then as a bishop. So so if you if uh, you pick up my work, what I'm going to try to do is take is tell the story of, story of Ryle's life and ministry within the broader context of his world. So I try to fit him in his world and uh, and explain sort of what he's trying to do uh, as a minister, as a as a man, those sorts of things. So that that's what I'm trying to do there. Other other good there have been a couple of other books that have come out fairly recently. Ian Murray with Banner of Truth uh, did uh, a short relatively short biography or medium-sized biography of Ryle called uh, Prepared to Stand Alone, uh, which is good. Um, I, I think probably my my favorite introduction uh, to Ryle would be Eric Russell, uh, that man of granite with the heart of a child. So he's going to do, you know, um, he's just got a great survey of Ryle's life um, as well. So both Ian Murray and Eric Russell's would be good ones to, to, to go to. Um, I'm trying to think of anything. Oh, J.I. Uh, Packer. Did a uh, did a work called Faithfulness and Holiness, where he takes the first seven chapters of holiness. That's the holiness part, and the first part of that is like a short Packer introduction to Ryle, which I think is just outstanding. Uh, it's very short, but it's very good too. So uh, I would recommend those three works: Packer, Faithfulness and Holiness, Eric Russell's biography, and Ian Murray's biography as well. So we have been talking about J.C. Ryle with Bennett Rogers, who, who has come out with a bio on him, on J.C. Ryle. And I, I can speak from this conversation and say I've been inspired and encouraged hearing about J.C. Ryle. And I'm going to have to go pick up and read that book to learn more about yeah. him as, as a man, as I have benefited already from his expository thoughts on Mark as I go through it. Bennett, yeah. would you... Would you give us any other final encouragements pertaining or about or from J.C. Ryle for our listeners and for us personally, too? 
Sure, sure. Well, well, when Ryle stepped down as bishop, he has this great farewell address, which you can find online. And I think really that that farewell address, I think is, it's a great summary of his ministry, but it's also a great challenge to us. And he, as he's leaving the stage and knows, I think, death is near, uh, he urges his clergymen. Uh, he says, don't neglect your preaching. Um, he says, a Christ-exalting minister will never preach to empty benches. So there you have that, a challenge for the Christians, among, you know, the ministers among us at least, to, to don't neglect your preaching, um, but, but broader than, than just to ministers, uh, exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's one of the things that he does throughout his, his life, his ministry. Uh, go look at Christ is all. I think it's the last chapter of holiness, which is a magnificent ending to holiness because um, he's exalting Christ as all there at the end of that. So I think he would tell us and encourage us to, to don't neglect our preaching, to exalt Christ. Um, he says also uh, to, to beware of divisions. And that's a problem in Liverpool. And so he, he says that he urges the, bro- the brothers to be at peace with one another. And then finally, and I, and I love the ending, he says, uh, don't uh, never let go of the principles of the Protestant Reformation. He said, that's what made England great. That's what makes our church great. That's what makes any church great. So um, don't neglect your preaching. Exalt Christ. Be at peace with your brother ministers and hold fast to the principles of the Reformation, which Raul loved and uh, and lived by and uh, tried to uh, popularize in print and in preaching. Well, Bennett, thank you so much for uh, joining us today as we have had a Great talk on J.C. Ryle. We are so thankful for you joining us. Thanks, brother. I enjoyed it. And to our listeners, grace and peace to you. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.